large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to a war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able to, with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have, uh, everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manual power. Pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Molly. A very good afternoon, everyone, and, and welcome to those of you who are joining on our live stream as well. My name is Alex, in case I haven't met you before. Uh, please do keep the bulletin open to the passage that Molly just read. Small print. Uh, small print is so much a part of life. It's that often neglected information that uh, most of us don't read. Small print is the essential product information uh, the instructions on how to put something together, warnings or, or extra costs for a particular product. Um, some small print seems obvious, like we don't really need to be told, and yet sometimes small print is still there because there are a minority of us that actually do need to be told. Uh, here are some real examples of small print. Uh, here's the first one, a radio antenna that says, warning, do not attempt to install if drunk or pregnant or both. Important for you to know. Fireworks, uh, warning, flammable, do not put in mouth. Uh, all that wonderful, strange American delicacy. I don't know how these people eat, really. Uh, warning, for best results, m remove cap. Easy cheese in a can. Mmm, not so good. Uh, the windscreen... Uh, sunshade, it says, warning, do not drive with sunshade in place. <laughs> Remove from windshield before starting ignition. Or this lovely one if you buy it for your kids. The Superman costume, warning, wearing this garment does not enable you to fly. <laughs> uh, as obvious it's, as small print sometimes is, uh, not all of us are in the habit of reading it. Uh, whether it's updating your computer software or buying insurance, we often say that we've read the terms and conditions without reading the terms and conditions. Now, why is it the case? It might be because, well, the terms and conditions, the small print is too confusing for us, or we just can't be bothered, we don't have the time to go all the way through it, or we think we understand enough about the product. We, we don't want to read the small print and the terms and conditions. Now today, as you, as you might know, we're continuing in our series, In the Hard Sayings of Jesus. 
Now, if you've read the Gospels enough, you know it's actually quite a long list of hard sayings, but we're confining ourselves just to four in the middle of Luke's Gospel. And one of the remarkable things about the Gospel is there is no small print with Jesus. He's very clear about the terms and conditions about following Him. He repeats them over and over and over again in His teachings, including in the passage that we just read. And the hard saying of Jesus in this passage probably struck people straight away at the very beginning in verse 26 when Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own lives, such a person cannot be my disciple. How can Jesus say that? What's it, what does it mean when he says, you've got to hate your parents, you've got to hate your spouse, you've got to hate your children? What is he talking about? We find it very hard to get beyond that. But in fact, I think actually Jesus says something much stronger further down in the passage, verse 33, which I think is probably the summary verse of the entire passage. Jesus says, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. You know, with Jesus, there is no small prince that you can easily ignore. If you're going to follow him, he tells you the terms and conditions there really quickly. If, if, if you're going to follow him, he says you have to be all in. Everything in your life, you're all in. Now, think about to whom Jesus is speaking. In verse 25, we're told about his audience. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Now, sure, amongst this large crowd were were the disciples, the twelve, those who were full-time in sort of ministry school. But it wasn't just them, was it? It was a large crowd. That means there could have been Pharisees. There there are all sorts of people who were interested in listening to Jesus, who were kind of engaged with Him. You know, sometimes I think we often feel as though there's two levels of Christians, you know, there's the, there's the normal Christians, you know, the regular Joe Christians who call themselves Christians, who, 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 who turn up, who pray when life's not going well, um, who do this and that, but, you know, not too serious. Let's not get too fundamental. Let's not get too serious. There's the sort of regular Christians, but then there's the sort of super Christians, the dedicated types, the, the missionaries, the muxies, the ministers, those types of, you know, really serious Christians. But With Jesus, there are no two levels, there are no two classes of Christians, because notice he says, to anyone, if anyone comes and follows me, there are no two standards of Christians. He says, full discipleship is an absolute requirement of everybody. If you're signing up, this is what's involved, it's not optional. It's not like he, he turns to the crowd, the big crowd of those people listening and says, I've come to give you life and life to the full. And then he says just to the 12, no, but actually for you guys, it's a bit different for you. You're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. Sorry. No, no, it, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you're all in. There's no hidden costs. there's no hidden details. You've got to follow me with everything you've got. And so if that's the case, what does it actually look like to follow Jesus? Well, he tells this large crowd three things. He tells them about a priority, a cost, and he gives them a warning. So let's kick off with the priority in verse 26. Again, Jesus uses that hard phrase with that hard word, hates. 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Why does Jesus use that word hate? I mean, does he really expect his followers to be hostile towards their own family? Probably not. Here's why. Here is the Jesus who tells his disciples elsewhere, you've got to follow the commandments, which includes the fifth commandment, honour your father and mother. Here is the Jesus that tells his disciples, love your enemies, and who prays when he's getting crucified about those crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So why does he use the word hate to talk about your family? Well, he's not using the word hate, I think, in normal terms. Uh, You know, like detesting or being hostile to someone who is against you. He's using it in a different sense. Um, Because in Hebrew literature, yes, often the word hate was used in an active sense, but it was also used quite commonly in a comparative sense. So, for example, uh, many of you know the story of Jacob. Jacob married two sisters, Rachel and Leah. And yeah, Jacob was not an impressive guy. And we're told in, in Genesis 29, it says twice that Jacob loved Rachel, but he hated Leah. That's what the text says in the original language, that he hated Leah. But we know, looking further on, actually he doesn't really hate Leah. Verse 30 in that chapter says, yeah, he loved Rachel more, but what it actually means is that he didn't hate Leah actively in comparison to his love towards Rachel, a love which was so, so strong, it looked like in comparison his feelings towards Leah were were hatred. Or the word hate is also used to describe God's feelings between Jacob and his twin brother Esau. God says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Does it mean he literally hated Esau? No, but compared to Jacob, that was his feeling. Now we should just pause here and um, think about the implications of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying, I want you to literally hate your father and mother, your spouse, your children. What he is saying is, I want you to love me more. Jesus is saying to this large crowd of people in front of him, I don't want, I don't want to be just a passing interest to you. I don't want to be an object of just casual devotion. Uh, someone that you fit around, you know, you fit me in your agenda when it's convenient to you. I, I, I want to be your first priority. Do you know how occasionally in life you have those conversations that are just seared into your conscience? They become like a a core memory. They've impacted you so much. They've formed you so much. Uh, I became a Christian when I was 18 in my first year of university. And I remember having this conversation with a guy about six months after I became a Christian uh, that, that impacted me. He was kind of mentoring me at the time. And he'd just gotten married. He'd just gotten married a few weeks earlier. And he said to me, Alex, you know, I need to marry my wife second. Now, I didn't have much of a clue of romance back then, but I knew enough that that's not the type of thing that you say deliberately to your new wife. I'm going to marry you second. You know, how romantic is that? It's not romantic. This guy's not going to make a very good husband. But he explained himself. He said, Alex, I'm talking about priorities. Um, It's not that he didn't love his wife. He loved his wife very much. It's just he said he wants to love Jesus first. Because in loving Jesus first, he can love his wife better. In loving Jesus first, he can be the husband that he should be to his wife. It was a question of priorities. 
Now, that priority that Jesus is demanding is comprehensive. It goes for every area of life, everything that you might love. And so, if you look at this passage, you can actually see a range in what Jesus says. He says to one side, you've got to love me, you've got to love me more than your parents, more than your spouse, more than, more than your children. Now, remember, Jesus is speaking into a family-orientated, sort of patriarchal, very traditional culture. Family came first in that culture. You didn't neglect your family. You didn't disgrace your family. You didn't disappoint them. You chose the job that your, your, your family chose for you. You chose a, a spouse that your family approved of. Everything. You didn't move away from your family. Family came first. Now, many of us know what it's like to live in that sort of more traditional background. But it's, Jesus doesn't leave it there. He, he, he doesn't just speak to a traditional culture. You could say he, he, he speaks to even a modern individualistic culture. He's not just saying, you know, you've got to hate your father and mother and your spouses. He says, even your own life. And, you know, the, the modern individualistic Western culture that I'm from says, no one can tell me to do, uh, no one can tell me what to do with my own life. My own life's must, my own. I make the decisions here. I'm just going to choose a goal and I'm going to go for it. It's all about self-fulfillment, self-expression. No one tells me what to do with my own life. And yet you see the range a traditional family-orientated culture and a more modern, Western, individualistic culture. It's like Jesus is saying to everyone, regardless of where you're from, you've got to put me first. And it's not surprising that Jesus would be so comprehensive because if He is indeed God, He knows how we are wired. He knows that it's a given, people will always love something or someone. We'll always have something in the middle of our hearts that dictates how we live our lives. We were built to love. And the reality is, what you love the most, you will give the most to. What you love the most is what you will work the hardest for and, and, and sacrifice the most for in life. You'll think about that which you love the most all the time. That's just the reality of the human condition. And it, whatever you love most takes the most priority for you whether it's your spouse or your children or, or your job or some career or academic success or your health, that's the thing that you're going to be prioritising. St. Augustine in, in the fourth century wrote a book called The Confessions and in it he says our problem isn't that we love things, it's that our loves are disordered, our loves are in the wrong order. Our problem isn't that we love things too much, it's that we love Jesus too little. Uh, we love something or someone else more than we love Him. So, say you're from a, a traditional background, family is, you know, it's, it's got to be number one, but somehow during your life, uh, you've disappointed your parents. You felt as though you've let them down. Uh, you might not recognise it at the forefront of your mind, but it is there in your consciousness. You carry it around like a little bit of a baggage for you. Um, maybe it's this sense of failure that, that sort of inhibits a proper relationship with them. Maybe that's your story. Or maybe your story is, you know, your career hasn't gone the way you wanted it to. You had all these plans and ambitions, the, these studies that you did, but you've kept hitting blocks along the way, walls that you just can't get through, and you, you haven't had the career, the success that you kind of wanted, and you're really struggling with it, it's getting you down. 
What do you do to get peace? Well, Augustine will say that there's one of two options. First of all, you could get angry. My parents are really hard to please. They're never happy with anything I do. Whatever I do is just not good enough. Or, okay, I've, I've had my career failures. I haven't been able to get where I wanted to, but who cares? Those people who just get the careers they want, they're just full of themselves anyway. You could get angry. Or you could do something else. Augustine says that the only way to sort of get over this sense of failure that you might have had with your parents or sense of failure that you might have had with your career or some sort of other thing that's kind of crushing your soul, the only way to get over those things is to to love God more. Loving God more doesn't automatically mean that all your problems in life go away, but focusing on God, remembering the love that He has for you, remembering how He's shown His love for you, remembering that this is a love that can never be taken away, will help you to kind of have that ballast to negotiate the storms of life will help you to be able to navigate through the ups and downs with a sense of poise and equilibrium and calm, come what may. So, let me ask you a question. Whose love, whose approval do you really want most in life? Who is it who is competing with Jesus for your heart the most? So Jesus tells us about a priority, but then secondly, He talks about a cost, a cost in following Him. Uh, Verse 27, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, we don't really use that phrase, carrying a cross, too often nowadays. And if we do use it, we're normally talking about something which is a mild inconvenience. A friend of mine once described uh, shopping with his wife as carrying a cross, okay? Not the best example. Um, But in the ancient times, to Jesus' original audience, they knew exactly what carrying a cross meant. And for them, it was a term of deep offence. They knew the cross wasn't just a form of Roman punishment, it was the cruelest form of death a form of punishment and death that was even forbidden to be inflicted upon Roman citizens. It was intended to be a public and humiliating and slow and torturous way of dying. When Jesus' audience heard that word cross, they shuddered. They trembled in a way that we don't. We're kind of immune to it. It's become a very sanitized word for us. So what's Jesus talking about when he says, take up your cross. Well, I think he's expanding on what he had just said earlier about prioritizing him, about making him first. Yes, he is using deliberately provocative, deliberately shocking words in order to shake the sort of lethargy and complacency out of his listeners, but also to show them the expansive demands of what he's asking from them. If they're going to follow Him, it's going to come at a cost. Now, Jesus is pointing this out to to, to all people, ancient and modern, that if they're going to follow Him, there are some roads that they cannot walk down. There are some roads that they cannot walk down. You cannot call yourself a follower of Jesus and expect to walk down the road of career success as your top priority. 
You cannot call yourself a follower of Jesus and expect to walk down the road of family success as your top priority or health or a comfortable lifestyle or status or some sort of reputation or achievement as your first priorities because they're not the roads that Jesus chose to walk down. He didn't walk down those roads. To follow Jesus means to walk down the road that he travels to take up his priorities and, 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 and values, which will often mean walking a different road than this, the road this world tells you to take. Yes, sometimes it will mean getting rid of destructive, destructive habits out of your life. Destructive habits. But it will also mean acting with integrity and honesty and, and transparency and humility in the workplace, even when that costs you career advancement. It will mean walking the road of chastity, no sex outside of marriage, not dating or marrying a non-Christian because they will take you on a different road that Jesus wants you to travel on. It means walking down the road of commitments to this weird community of people called Christians. Because when Jesus calls you into relationship with Him, He also calls you into a relationship with a group of people who are walking down the same road. And so you commit yourself to, to turning up regularly, to, to, to being involved in groups, to serving, to, to spiritual growth, even when all those things are onerous. Even when you, you don't feel like doing it, you feel like it's not making any progress in your life because you're going through a dry spell, you commit yourself. Whatever the situation, Jesus says, there is always a choice. You always have to ask yourself, what road am I going to choose here? If you're a Christian, you, 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 you call to take the road of the cross. And yes, that will mean that often you cannot accept the things that the world holds out to you because it's also a road of self-denial. Jesus is telling us the terms and conditions. Richard Chin, a leader of a university ministry in Australia, said this line, to take up your cross is to consider it better to die than to live for something other than Jesus. To take up your cross is to consider it better to die than to live for something other than Jesus. From verse 28, Jesus gives us two examples of what it means, what it looks like to count the cost, what it means to, to, to make deliberate decisions in life. Uh, the first example is a man who is going to build a tower and this is just a basic exercise of, of planning and budgeting and surveying. There's no point starting the job if he doesn't have enough capital to finish the job and so he has to figure out what completing the tower will look like. The second example is of a king who is deciding whether to go out to battle. Does he have enough resources to gain the victory or should he sue for peace instead? Do I have enough soldiers to win this thing? He's got to count the cost of what it will mean to get victory. Now, of course, the point that Jesus is making is not about building towers or fighting battles. It's about counting the cost, and in particular, counting the cost of following him. It's like he's saying, I'm engaged in God's mission to humanity. This is an endeavour that was conceived before the foundations of the earth. It costs me my life to bring you salvation. 
The journey I'm calling you on is no journey of mere self-improvement or casual devotion. It's your life's purpose. This journey is your life's purpose and it does come at a cost. Sometimes there will be things that come along on this journey which will deeply unsettle you and trouble you. Sometimes these things will, will cause you a great deal of pain and suffering. But I'm bringing them to you to help you to hold on to me more strongly. So if you're going to come along on this journey with me, think about whether you're prepared to pay the costs because there will be costs asked of you. In 1812, Adoniram Judson was the first American who served as a missionary overseas. At the age of 23, he departed his homeland to go to Burma, what's now Myanmar, with his bride of just 12 days. Now, a little while beforehand, he asked permission of Anne Hazeltine's father in order to marry her. And this is what he said. I have now to ask whether you consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of oceans, to every kind of want and distress, to, to degradation and insult, persecution and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? When I asked my future father-in-law to marry his daughter, I didn't say that. <laughs> I don't know what you have said to, you know, your prospective parents-in-law, but this is some small print, huh? What, what, what do you think his chances of success are? Well, Anne Hasseltine's father left the decision up to her and she said... Yes. Here were some people who recognised they had choices to make and they chose the road of the cross. One of my greatest encouragements as a pastor, if I'm honest, is to hear some of you share your stories with me about some of the tougher decisions that you've made as, as Christians. Sometimes uh, those tougher decisions have to do with work and career. Um, some of you have chosen Christ over promotion at work because you knew very clearly that promotion at work, taking that particular role, would squeeze the oxygen out of everything else in life, as promotions sometimes do. You'd have far less time with your family and children, with your spouse. You wouldn't see them very much. There'd be too much travel. You'd have a whole lot less time for church and to be committed to a group and committed to serving. It would just squeeze too much and so you cho chose Christ over promotion. For some of you, it's particular situations at work, like what you do, for instance, when your boss asks you to lie. If you're going to walk the road of the cross, don't be surprised at the opposition that you face. The Bible is full of cautions that you can be at peace with this world and yet be a wholehearted disciple of Jesus. Those things often do not match. Following Jesus cannot come on our own terms. That leads to half-hearted and temporary discipleship. So, this passage talks to, us, talks to us about a priority, but then talks to us about a cost. Lastly, Jesus, Jesus gives us a warning. Verse 34, Salt is good, 
But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now we know nowadays, salt is salt, right? It can't really lose its saltiness. (laughs) But in ancient times, salt was often mixed in with all sorts of other impurities. And once the salt bit had been used up, or if water had somehow gotten into the salt and leached out all the saltiness, then what was left when the salt was gone was useless. It was no good anymore, either to provide flavouring for food or as a preservative. Now, what's this got to do with what Jesus has already been talking about? Jesus is speaking, remember, to a large crowd of religiously interested people. And remember, amongst the crowd are people like Pharisees, very religious people, but their religion on the outside wasn't a reality on the inside. There was a difference between what was going on the outside and what was going on in their heart. It's like they were salt that had lost its saltiness. There was no substance to their religion. And so Jesus is warning this large crowd of religiously interested people against religious hypocrisy. To claim to be one thing, to claim, for instance, to be devoted to Jesus, and yet their reality is completely different. They're not devoted to Jesus if you looked at their lives, they were devoted to all sorts of other things. And so Jesus' is warning, Jesus is warning is blunt. If salt loses its saltiness, it's useless. It's not worth anything anymore. It is thrown out. Jesus is saying, outward religion is useless on its own. Having a veneer of Christianity is useless on its own. And he's very blunt. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Look, do you see why what Jesus is saying is hard? It's going to offend us and it's going to maybe offend some of you. One of the real dangers of religious hypocrisy is that often we're so blind to it. You know, we often don't realize that our outside doesn't match what's going on on our inside. Our actions don't match our hearts. We can fool ourselves into thinking that outward religion is enough. But Jesus can't be fooled. You know, maybe there are some of you who've come here who are exploring Christianity, who, who are trying to work it out. And you've been hurt by Christians in the past. You know, they've done something or said something. Even Christians that you're very close to, even someone that you might be married to, has hurt you deeply in the past. And I'm sorry for that. You know, Christians aren't perfect people. We make mistakes, we often hurt one another. We're hypocrites. But authentic Christianity is a Christianity where people are quick to recognise their faults, quick to repent, quick to try to change. It's not a Christianity where people are content with the status quo, content to keep on sinning, content not to repent. That is religious hypocrisy. And Christ calls on His people to wake up and be different. Since we aren't, in fact, experts on our own hearts, the Bible calls on us over and over and over again to examine our own hearts to figure out whether we are really in the faith. To check out your own heart, seek to understand your own heart and ask yourself, Am I taking Jesus seriously 
Or am I just patronizing him? Am I using Jesus as a token of my own convenience when really still I'm calling the shots? I'm making the decisions about which roads I go down. Let's conclude with how we began, with that sort of summary verse of this passage. Jesus says in verse 33, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. I want you to picture for a moment in your mind everything that you have, everything that is most worthwhile for you, everything that in sincerity is really good about your life, everything that you've worked hard to achieve, everything that you're proud of, everything that is of profound cost to you. Can you picture those things in your mind? Christ is worth far more. I'm not saying all those things are worthless, I'm not saying that at all. But in the grand scheme of eternity, Christ is worth far more. Look, this passage is not about what we can purchase for our own salvation. The cost that we have to pay in order to please Jesus so He saves us and gives us heaven. It's not about that because we cannot pay that cost. It's about the cost that He has paid on your behalf because you couldn't pay it and He paid it willingly. Hebrews 12 says this, For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What was the joy that was set before Jesus that made him endure the cross? What was the joy that he did not already possess in all of eternity? Riches, splendor, glory in heaven before he had to come to earth. The perfect, intimate, loving, eternal relationship with his own father. He had all the love that he needed. What did Jesus want that he didn't already have? What was the joy set before him? It was you. Jesus didn't have us. We were the ones that made him willing to endure the cross and suffer that cosmic separation from God on the cross that he endured. He willingly paid the cross for you, the ultimate cost. And so if we're serious about Jesus, we're willing to to joyfully, gratefully count the cost for him. Because He calls you to walk along a road with Him that fits you best, that glorifies Him, that brings you most comfort and joy in this life, that is far better than any road that this world can encourage you to walk down. Accept the gift that He has offered you and daily take up your cross and say, I'm going to walk this road with Jesus and He's going to help me along the way. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we want to pause and and remember again that this this is hard for us to hear, hard for us to receive, hard for us to accept because deep down, um, we want to be the kings of our own thrones, the kings of our own hearts. We want to be the rulers, the kings and queens of our own lives. Um, And what Jesus is asking here of his followers is priority, to seek him, to love him more than anything or anyone else. 
Uh, Lord God, we ask for forgiveness for the ways in which we fail to do this every day. Um, And we ask for your help by your Spirit that you would point out the areas of our lives where we're not honouring Jesus. And maybe, Lord, there's, there's people in this room now who aren't making Jesus their priority and who want to and who want to make a, a change now and who want to make a difference now and for the rest of their lives to be different. Would you be speaking directly into their hearts and, and, and causing change? Lord, as we come uh, to your table and we remember Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed, help us to know that he has paid the ultimate cost for us and help us to take that reality deep down into our hearts and to let that reality guide us and nurture us and shape us and change us every day of our lives so that he might be given glory. We ask these things in his name. Amen.